Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century brought to you by the Asia Group. I'm Rich Verma. In each episode, we bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo. And today I'm coming to you from beautiful Singapore. And unfortunately, my co-host Kurt is not here with me, but I'm thrilled to be joined by C. Raja Mohan, a prolific author and foreign policy analyst currently serving as the director of the Institute of South Asian Studies at the National University of Singapore. In addition to his work at NUS, Raja is the foreign affairs columnist for the Indian Express and also a non-resident senior fellow at Carnegie India. He's also been a distinguished fellow at the Observer Research Foundation and he and I have worked together on, on a lot of really interesting projects over the years, and you, you're a prolific author. I just want to say how great it is to see you here in Singapore. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you, Rich. Thank you for calling me into this program. No, it's it's great. And I, I think I told you this before, but uh, when I served as ambassador, I used to cut out your columns mm-hmm. And write little notes on the top of them and give them to um, give them to my staff. You're still writing a lot. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you're doing here uh, at the at NUS. I think when Singapore wanted you no, know, their strategy is to become a global city, and uh, as part of that effort, where they've drawn in the rest of the world, they've tried to invest in creating knowledge about the rest of the world. As part of that effort, they, they have an East Asia Institute, they have a South Asia Institute, they have a Middle East Institute. So these are, so where they want to, because they feel everything affects them, so they need to more. So the Institute of South Asian Studies was set up about uh, 14 years ago, uh, focuses on uh, India, of course, and the region, the developments there. There's a big interest in uh, India's economic growth. Uh, there is interest in India's uh, tech uh, developments. So it's really partly uh, focus on trade, technology, and economic development. The other part, of course, is not easy to understand India's complex politics. So at the Institute, we also do some work on India's internal politics and the South Asia's internal mm-hmm. politics. And then the geopolitics of the region, of course, it's always of interest to them. It's of special interest in India's relations with America and China are of special interest here. What I've done is also we've tried to look at technology policy that is the, the so-called fourth industrial revolution and the new digital revolution. It's affecting politics. You can see the whole debate on Facebook, right. uh, WhatsApp. Right. We're also seeing it affects the future of uh, the economies, work, and all those issues. And then it's also going to change, I suspect, the balance of power in the world. So we're looking at the impact of technology on the core areas of interest for us, which is politics, economics, and international relations. I want to uh, go through actually yeah. all those areas, yeah. and you're still writing your weekly column, or I guess more than a weekly column for Indian Express yes. as well. Uh, yes, yeah. I continue to do that. I don't know how you do that. I mean, just as a practical matter, how do you come up with new and fresh ideas uh, that you either haven't come up with before, uh, or just giving kind of new perspective on things? What's your What's your process for for writing? No, I think uh, much of the challenge is really picking up the topic, uh, which is really. And a, and a columnist has to be, you know, you know, it's, you can't write on anything you want at any day. So it has to be something linked to what is happening, where there's a general interest uh, that particular week, and then relate, and then come up with uh, a set of arguments on, uh, you know, how you look at the situation or how the situation is different. But you say, okay, I've written about 
India's Act East again. How can I how can I write about it yet another time? Or I've written about India's role in the region, but yeah. you tend to have new and different perspectives. I think once if you're doing it for a long time, of course, your bank of information goes up. Right. The important thing is to sense where is there a change? What is the likely change? Or something is moving? Yeah. How do you explain the the moving parts uh, at any given time? And I think we are in a period actually where there's so much change happening. So if you're sensitive to change, then I think at this point it's easy to uh, relate even familiar terrain to uh, how the uh, situation might have, you know, begin to evolve in a, on a particular day or in a particular context. Yeah, well, it's it's amazing. You've really contributed uh, so much. I think, you know, we are trying to not only understand what's happening in Washington, and I have to admit I'm mm-hmm. the last person who really understands what's happening in Washington, but... Uh, we're also trying to understand where India is going, where it is aspiring to go. And is it, you know, we've talked about whether it'll be more than a regional leader and, and take on more uh, global responsibilities. Just give us your sense of where we are today with Indian foreign policy and Indian aspirations uh, as you sit here, from, as you watch it from Singapore. No, I mean, you know India as well as anyone having served as ambassador there. And I think the structurally, as India's uh, economic growth continues, even around 7% or more, uh, the relative weight of India, I mean, I would say steadily grown since the early 1990s. So that has opened up space for India to do more things with more countries. And the interest of the rest of the world in India, with all the major powers, including US, China, Europe, uh, and Japan, has grown. So it's really that you're in a sweet spot in that sense. I mean, as you continue to grow, everyone wants to do more things with you. So that has been a happy situation for the last 20, I would say from 91 to now almost uh, 29 years. But I think we're entering a period where what was taken for granted is no longer granted. What do you mean by that? Yeah. One is the, I think, uh, President Trump's contribution to that. I mean, I think he's not just an individual uh, wise. I think the the backlash against globalization, that whether it is a question of, uh, you know, relevance of WTO, whether it's the question of the traditional trading arrangements, the fact that in the US or in the UK, there were losers from the process of globalization and Trump and others are channelizing that resentment. I don't think it's going to be limited to Trump. And if I read the some of the Democratic candidates uh, are coming up. And I think the ideas, I think Democratic Party too is moving left. So I think the, the backlash against globalization, uh, we used to always think the developing countries are the problem, but here, the advanced countries, there are now sections which are questioning globalization, especially in the US. That I think has introduced a tremendous problem for India because I don't think it's fully understood in India because we think of the US as a monolith, that if the US is not supportive of WTO, because, as you know, that when you dealt with Indians, oh, we are you know, adapting to globalization. We had our own time and space to do this. But now you have a U.S. leader saying, we need to negotiate. I mean, we need to solve problems on trade. That The, the new trade-first strategy of the U.S. demands that India has to find accommodation. Until now, it was about strategic. It was about foreign policy. It was about but the globalization was taken for granted. But today, U.S. is changing. And I don't think India has adapted fast enough to the change of arguments uh, in the U.S., whether yeah. uh, 
you're not you're not making a value judgment on whether those changes in the U.S. are either good or bad. You're just saying those are changes that that have occurred. I guess my own observation on kind of Democratic, uh, you know, party and whether it's going left. I mean, there's clearly been uh, elements within American society that have been impacted by globalization, but Trump has gone a degree further and changed up kind of the role that America plays in the world. And those maybe are are two different things. And it it almost, some days it feels like we turned the corner into the 21st century and forgot about the 20th century, all the lessons that were learned and the role that was played. But in the end, does this lead to a space that India has to fill um, within Asia? Exactly. And I think because you had taken the, where the U.S., policies for granted and that you're adapting to that and building up incrementally. So when there's a disruption in the way the U.S. operates, so I'm, as a realist, I mean, I don't take positions on whether it's good, it's good or bad for the I, Americans. I have very strong positions. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll save yeah, those sure, for yeah, later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I think if the U.S., if the, we deal with the administration that we have, those of us who are outside, who are not citizens of the U.S. So say the U.S. is changing course, I would say the president is like an emperor in the U.S., that there are certain pet issues for him. And if you don't deal with that, the effect of that on the rest of the relationship might begin to affect. So that's one problem. Second, President Trump is also saying, look, you guys have to take care of yourself. You don't have a nanny, American nanny, to do solve every security problem. What is generally framed as a debate between US and Europe or US and Japan. But in the case of Afghanistan, as you know, uh, if the US withdraws, so we had a great thing going for 17 years, the Americans were there, basically taking care of the stability of Afghanistan. But if the U.S. leaves, then that's going to affect my security. So what I'm leading up to is that India can no longer be a free rider. It has to take some responsibility for its own regional security, as well as help stabilize the global trading system, rather than a free rider who's just taking advantage, but not moving himself. Wow. Okay, you put a lot on the table there, but Af- Afghanistan, you put the need to deal with, if I heard you correctly, the kind of trade issues that Trump has raised yeah. in the in the bilateral uh, relationship. You said the phrase free rider. Uh, I didn't. Um, as an American, I think it's harder to, to make that allegation. Let's try to unpack some of those. Uh, first, uh, Afghanistan happening in real time is yeah. this um, negotiation uh, that the U.S. is leading with the with the Taliban. Uh, this has been tried before. There were real skeptics in India that were quite critical of the Obama administration for essentially launching a similar yeah. strategy. Um, what's different about this, if anything? And what is the likely yeah. Indian reaction? I think India, we tend to expect, you know, the Americans to keep doing us favors all the time, you know, the but the fact is, I cannot, as an Indian, overcome the American domestic politics. Uh, the U.S. has spent blood and treasure in Afghanistan. If the domestic political consensus veers in favor of withdrawal, how it gets done, because that's a tactics, but if the general sense of retrenchment that Trump is talking about, if that affects Afghanistan, I should be prepared to deal with that consequence. Yeah, it's not complaining, not whining about Americans leaving. And I don't want to interrupt you, but yeah. I, I made this argument a, a lot when I was in India. 
and about the amount that American taxpayers have spent, the, the amount of blood and sacrifice that American soldiers uh, had spent there. And oftentimes I would get a view back from Indian policymakers, you're naive. You don't really know how the world works. And, and, and once you walk out of there, all the bad actors will fill the void. I assume there is still the risk of all the bad actors filling the void. I'm saying the risks are there. Absolutely. You're yeah. right. But Trump is saying you're next door. Do something Why, about yeah, it. You do something about it. Why is it that I have to come 10,000 miles? The library comment was gratuitous, by no, the way. Yeah, but, but I think, I mean, if you see, he said this about the Germans, he said it this about the Japanese. And I think the Indians, as a general rule, as you, you would have noticed in Delhi, we don't fully grasp American domestic politics or the internal arguments within the U.S. Therefore, you tend to underestimate the consequences of that. And in the normal times, there was a stability. The foreign policy elite had the freedom to do the kind of things it did. But today, the domestic consensus is breaking down. So I think we need to be a lot more sensitive to the internal arguments in the U.S. Right. Now, with the U.S. president, or the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, these guys decide, look, we're not going to do what we've done for the last 50 years. Then India, as a large economy, as a major power with ambitions to play a larger role, then we should be stepping up to the plate and not merely complain, oh, Americans are leaving today. They said, no, they said they'll be here forever. No. So it's, as a democracy, India should be the first one to acknowledge if the domestic consensus breaks down in the US, other things are happening. Are we ready to move in, do some things there? Can, can that, um, how do you reconcile that? So, okay, so this is going to force uh, some tough decisions, not only in Washington and Kabul, but also in, in Delhi. Yeah. You've written recently about Indian policy, this kind of legacy, non-alignment, mm. modern terminology, mm. maybe strategic autonomy. How does kind of an American withdrawal from uh, Afghanistan impact an India that is still kind of wedded to non-alignment, or is it very different for the regional issues uh, kind of at stake here? I think uh, you, you said it all. I mean, the question now is how quickly can we adapt to a new circumstance? The two circumstances. One, the post-89, the U.S. seen as the global hegemon, and that U.S. was the sole superpower, that it was going to do all the things every corner. That was the internal consensus, as well as outsiders believed it, but, but also afraid of it, that the U.S. would do all kinds of things. But today, Trump is saying, you know, we're not going to do everything. Now, are we prepared mentally for that? We're not. Second is that this non-alignment argument presumed that the two great powers, there was rivalry between them, like as in the 50s. Maybe we'll come back to a U.S.-China rivalry this time. What has changed is India is a much bigger economy. It is a much larger political footprint today. So to keep Framing India's international relations in terms of non-alignment and strategic autonomy are meaningless I mean, in, in many ways because they don't tell you what your problems are, what your difficulties are. But I don't know if you noticed uh, the Rasina dialogue in Delhi in January that yeah. where the Foreign Secretary Gokhale said, we no longer non-aligned, we are aligned, but on different issues with different people. So at least that is an important breakthrough okay. in thinking. So I think whatever the month, you know how Indians have a mantra for everything. Yeah. But operationally, I think we, we are now forced to deal with rising Chinese power. Uh, America as a distant neighbor is still needed for balance. Mm -hmm. So at some point, how do we build a new coalition in Asia mm -hmm. 
to to stabilize this region i think that is the principal challenge and in that non alignment is a is a distraction mm-hmm. it uh, prevents realistic thought mm-hmm. but i think operationally the fact that we moved so close to the us and you played a big role in strengthening defense ties to so to some extent we were already closer to the us on defense issues than with the chinese our trade with america is much bigger than with the chinese mm-hmm. but it is fully not translated in the way we the political class uh, articulates or argues about this and but but i think operationally uh, it, we are moving forward but but not fast enough yeah, it's interesting when you see our two militaries actually train together and yeah. cooperate together i think it would actually surprise people at how capable uh, they actually are together you've also written that alliances are kind of a 20th century concept. And when we think about a modern U.S.-India partnership, we really, the alliance framework doesn't make any sense. Neither side really aspires uh, to an alliance. But what I heard you say, I think, is really kind of more of what something Secretary Carter used to talk to us about, this kind of networked architecture in Asia of like-minded countries standing up for this, whether you call it the liberal democratic order or free and open Indo-Pacific, but something that reflects our kind of common value system. Exactly. I mean, I think one is the values and one is the structure. Until now, you would have sensed in Delhi post-91, the Americans are trying to entrap us into an alliance. Right. And we must remain a non-aligned country. Right. So that was the argument. Uh, while now, if, but a, I don't think it was ever true, because America, it's not, you know, there's too many things for the U.S., uh, too many fish to fry. But that obsession with retaining some distance from the U.S., right. complicated uh, relationship. But what Trump is saying, in fact, the the word sovereignty, for example, if you see Trump's speech in the U.N. last two times, he uses the word sovereignty more than the Indians. Right. <laughs> He's saying, look, we don't want to tell you what to do. Now, this is a different argument coming from the U.S. And I don't think we fully understand that in, in India, certainly not in Asia. Therefore, if Trump is saying, you guys have to pay more, you look after yourself, then I think we're in a different world. And I don't think the Asians are barely coming to terms with it. Mm-hmm. And dealing with this requires uh, a, an approach uh, that is not only about non-alignment, because alliances themselves are weakening. Right. Uh, here, for example, in where we are sitting, the Thai alliance with the Americans, one of the oldest. The Thais are today closer to the Chinese. Right. South Korea, everyone knows where, where the problems are. The South Korean president, uh, you know, is way he's dealing with it is not the traditional framework. Japanese are very concerned about what's happening in the region. Yeah. Philippines, again, one of the oldest security partners of the United States, is trapped in a situation where uh, does it stay with the Americans or does it bow and do a deal with the Chinese? Right. So I think what we need are coalitions. We call it network, coalitions, that if the if there is a even a minimalist retrenchment of American power in the region, then all of us will have to find ways of doing more individually to try to keep the Americans as much and as long as possible, yeah. but on a different terms. It's not going to be Americans will do everything. We are there to criticize them uh, when they It's don't. interesting you still qualify it as if there is an American retrenchment. Uh, some people would say that retrenchment has already begun. Yeah. I think what Trump has said in the last two years, and I think to some extent even before that, uh, there were signals. But I think it's now, I would say this year, this by the end of this term of President uh, Trump's term, somewhere we'll have clarity for those who are outside. Is this a permanent shift in the U.S.? Right. Or is it an aberration 
that the next guy or lady yeah. is going to put it back to the same so so i i would say keep an open mind yeah. because it's not clear how much the americans will do right it's not one thing is clear is they're not going to do the kind of take the burden uh, that the kind of burden they're born for last 70 years so that's why i would say burden sharing rearranging the terms because you still has interests right so the question is are there going to be new alliances are yeah. there new arrangements uh, can there be a, a, an effective burden sharing that's acceptable to the american people yeah those are the new issues and i think uh, there's no certainty in terms of how it's evolving at yeah. this point Let me run through some uh, kind of, again, top of the mind foreign policy issues uh, involving other countries that, uh, that we think about a lot. One is Russia. And uh, we've kind of gone through this kind of fairly tortuous last few years on election interference, on uh, you know, Trump's relationship with Putin. But we've also been watching very closely uh, kind of India's long-standing relationship with Russia, but also the new defense kind of doubling down mm-hmm. on acquisitions of Russian military mm-hmm. equipment that could uh, trigger U.S. sanctions. Can you give us a sense just what's going on there? Is this just more of the old and we're making a bigger deal about it? Or is this, is this a reminder to America that India's got options? No, I, I would say in India, it's more of uh, inertia. Mm. the past enduring while the structure has changed uh, i would say the russian relationship there is nothing beyond the military relationship that is not a do, lot of common values yeah, not or, a, or even trade i mean right. even values apart we do more trade with bangladesh than with russia mm-hmm. so it's been a military relationship and their integration into the indian forces leaves a set of imperatives and unfortunately if you wanted to diversify last 25 years was a good time to significantly diversify today america supplies more but we still not sufficiently diversified so i would say this legacy problem the second problem is that you don't want to let go this relationship because of the uncertainty in the international system mm. and that's where the the us which told us generally look didn't really matter but now the us russia relationship has changed in the last few years and certainly after 2016, your president says one thing, Russia is not a problem, but the others say, look, Russia is the problem, and yeah. it's got trapped in your sure. domestic uh, politics. Yeah. But I see that at least some Americans are beginning to argue, look, America must decide, is China the number one threat or the Russia the number one threat? Which, in fact, if you see your intelligence chiefs uh, in the briefing to the Congress uh, in January said, look, Russia and China are now closer than ever before. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. This has come up on the show many times yep. in the past. People yep. don't talk about this as much as yep. they should. Because you, you, you heard in Delhi, the Indians complain that, look, don't push the Russians into the Chinese arms. But at the time, our American friends used to say, look, no, no, they, they're never going to get together. I, I have to tell you, I am totally um, perplexed by that argument, as if somehow we, we drove Moscow into Beijing's hands, when in fact, they see the price tag that China will pay for its military equipment. They see kind of a commonality in rejecting Western Europe and North American kind of democratic systems. They see a commonality in pushing back against uh, NATO and other alliances. So I'm not sure if we can take credit for driving <laughs> Russia into, into China's no, hands. I, yeah. What I tell the, my Indian friends is that, look, 
you know, Russians are not babes in the wood being pushed by somebody or the other. They're right. doing it for a specific purpose. There was a time when Russians chose under Yeltsin, the future was with the West. But I think somewhere down the line, you know, maybe Ukraine was a defining moment uh, in 2011, that the sense that, look, they didn't get a good deal with the Americans, they need to, you know, stand up to the West. As that point came into the situation, they began to draw closer and closer to the Chinese. So whether they were pushed or they jumped, the fact is today they're much closer, which makes life very difficult for India. Because Russia has to be a friend to balance the Chinese. Right. Today, they're lining up behind the Chinese, and we see it in Pakistan as well, bits of it. So I think over the longer term, uh, that a Russia-US normalization makes it easier for us to deal with the Chinese challenge. And I see that at least some Americans are beginning to argue this, uh, including in the Wall Street Journal the other day, where, where you say, uh, you know, it's good to focus on China and yeah. do a compromise with the, with, with the Russians. But the problem is, Doing a reasonable agreement with the Russians means you have to do something with them in Europe, where the differences are the are the sharpest. So I think the understanding that the US and Russia reached in 89-91 period has broken down. Yes. That is a problem. That opened up space for us. Now that is shrinking, and I think Indians have not moved fast enough to be alert to this danger that a, a China-US, China-Russia collaboration will make life difficult for us. And a US confrontation with both of them will force us to make a lot of decisions, not just on Russian military equipment. Tomorrow on the 5G issue, the Americans come and say, you do 5G with them, you're not with us. Mm. So I think these are going to be the real big issues where uh, India is not fully thought through. Yeah. Let me stay on um, technology. Yeah. As you mentioned, 5G, You've again, a subject you've written a lot about recently. And we see it as an increasing source of tension uh, in many of our bilateral relations, but also in yeah. um, in our relationship with India. And you you also write about this concept of, of data nationalism. Mm. Just tell us about what you're seeing, what you what the kind of currents are, and, and what we should be watching carefully. Yeah. I think one of the you know if you see in the last twenty years, I mean. You, you used to talk about it. I mean, how Silicon Valley and Bangalore as a technology hub are so interconnected today. Right. A lot of Indian Americans, American Indians, which are, whatever you call them, I mean, right. there's so much of engagement uh, that is, that's going on. And as you know, that the Bangalore grew when India was, Delhi was sleeping, shall we say, mm. that the government was not paying too much attention to IT sector. But today, as the challenges emerge, and I think Delhi is tending to interfere, intervene of statist solutions, to the problems that technology is facing, whether it's an increased taxation, uh, whether it is uh, the question of uh, demanding certain things from the technology companies, and all data must be stored. I think India is making the mistake it did in the 1970s of trying to get a national flag around the issues. Well, actually, it was openness that helped India grow the sole technology sector, and which is actually deeply connected to the Americans. Hmm. But so therefore now the data nationalism is now many of the nationalists, both on the left and the right, say, no, this is our data. We need to do it. I mean, there's a bigger argument there in the U.S. and Europe. But in India, the danger is it is drifting, one, towards a statist control. Second is big companies like Reliance are jumping on this bandwagon that is, okay, move the Amazon out, move the uh, Walmart out. I'll, you need to give me the dominance of the domestic sector. So it's a fairly straightforward yeah. capital demanding. How, you does, know. how does that benefit uh, ordinary consumers, though, at the end of the day? 
It yeah. doesn't at this stage. I mean, there's no question. That, that, that the question is, how do we do policy on the basis of, you know, you used to say what's good for General Motors is good for the United <laughs> right. States or what's good for Reliance is good for India. But I think it, the, we need a policy that would better mediate the, the internal and the external. Are we going to say we threw out IBM? I don't know if you remember in the 1970s. I yeah. So I, I think there's a danger of too much of nationalism because the sector by nature is, a, is an interconnected thing. Second problem we're going to face is because of the cheap Chinese chips, India's Indian telecom expansion was tied into the Chinese Huawei supplies on the mm-hmm, chips. Mm-hmm. But when the Americans draw the line, then we have to make a judgment. Look, are we going to stick with this Chinese or risking your long-term deep uh, technological relationship with the Americans? And I think that those choices are going to be pretty hard in the days ahead. Well, it's also part of a larger kind of trade tension that we're facing uh, everyone is watching the U.S.-China trade dispute. Very few people are watching U.S.-India uh, trade dispute. How important is that to get solved, and what will be the impact on our strategic relationship yeah, yeah. if it doesn't get solved? I think it's a very important issue, and I think, unfortunately, Delhi is not fully seeing the importance of this issue for two reasons. One, that uh, it is the president's favorite issue and if you don't move on that, you have a, you're going to have a bigger problem because that's going to affect the rest of the relationship. Second, I think as an ideological argument, the BJP government, certainly Modi government, has walked back from, at least Congress was left and was anti-trade for a long time. But they kind of did a bit of this, a bit of that. But I think the BJP's uh, reluctance to expand the free trade arrangements in fact, they, when they came into power under Modi government, the first thing they said was, look, we're going to review all the FTAs. So the trade, while well, Modi has done a lot of innovations on the foreign policy side, on trade, it's been a regressive approach. And I think that's going to cost India quite a bit if they don't make a some adaptation. I'll just uh, tell you one example. The Chinese are desperate for a deal with the Americans. Mm. Xi Jinping is every day saying, look, let's do yes. a deal, let's do a deal. I mean, I'll give you this, I'll give you that. Right. Because they know that getting this deal is very important for the future. In India, where the issues are actually far smaller, right? Uh, simple things on the GSP, on medical devices, on dairy milk, whatever, whatever these these issues are not as big as what bothers the Americans vis-a-vis the Chinese. But I think the Indian trade policy seems paralyzed, utterly paralyzed, to actually negotiate, give him something, give him a victory, which would make it easier for us to advance the relationship. Yeah, I actually think you could have a victory for both sides in this and... Um, you know, let's let's hope that we can get there. Because I, I I share your views that it's important. I also share your concerns that failure to get something will just create uh, kind of unnecessary irritants in the relationship. Final thing I want to ask you is: we're sitting kind of in the east, you know, of, of India, and we talked a lot when we were in Delhi about Act East graduation from from Look East. Uh, as you as you're here in Singapore. Do you, do you feel and see kind of uh, visible elements of, of India's Act East? Where does it, in, and if not, where does it need to go or what, what should it be doing differently? You heard this joke in Delhi. I mean, I think our ASEAN friends used to say, you know, call it look East, Act East, but please act fast. <laughs> so to some extent, I mean, I think India has been slow in mm-hmm. meeting the expectations uh, in this part of the world that things have changed. 
It's a much bigger relationship, just as with the U.S., compared to where we were in 1991. Today, we're at a much different place. The region is more interested in India. The whole range of sectors on uh, trade, on uh, defense cooperation, everything has moved. And there's a political engagement or just the tourist traffic uh, you've seen in Singapore right. and, and Thailand, etc. But I think the, the disappointments are twofold. One, I think one is on the trade. We have the same problem as with the U.S., which is we're not, we've been the laggard in the, the RCEP, the regional free trade agreement negotiations. So that kind of disappoints the region. They hope that Modi would change that, but actually there's been a problem. On defense, while India has moved, it's not moved fast enough. Mm. Uh, they would like to do a lot more things with us. So my fear is this, that as the US-China dynamic begins to affect the region, that India is not fully prepared to cope with the consequences. That is, we need stronger, more plurilateral defense arrangements with the region. We need to do more with the Quad. We need to do more with the triad, whatever you want to call it. So the pace has been slow. The direction has been good. But I would say, I fear that, that the structure of the region is changing so fast. In India, that moves too slow. Uh, we'll find it difficult to adapt to a new circumstance. Mm. So many things we could continue yeah. to talk about. Yeah. I'm going to end it here. And hopefully you'll do a, a part two next time we see you in Delhi or perhaps Washington, Washington or, yes. or yeah. New York. And I I um, would encourage all of you to, to follow Raja on, on Twitter, read your writings, follow what the Institute is doing here at the National University yes. of Singapore because you're doing uh, really terrific things and want to thank you for this in- incredible contribution. Great seeing you, Rich, and thank you for having me. For all of our listeners, thank you for tuning in. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>